I am here with the great Chris Sidiel. We're going to be talking options. Chris is the founder and co-CIO of the Ambrus Group. Had a lot of success in the options space, a volatility whiz. Chris, welcome to Forward Guidance. Thank you. I appreciate you having me here. It's my pleasure, Chris. How about you start off by just giving the audience uh, a little bit about your background? Like, how did you get into trading volatility? Because you know, a lot of people they want to trade equities, they want to trade bonds, commodities, but volatility is a little bit like a, a off the beaten path. So, how did you get into it? Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to mentor under an old volatility veteran uh, from one of the guys that helped started the CBOE. His name is Bob Cantor. So, way back in the day, I learned how to trade vol under Bob. And uh, Bob really shaped my way of thinking. Um, the way how I think about markets and the way how I think about risk all came from the way how Bob kind of instilled in me. And from there, I went to trade prop for a little bit. I was um, at Chimera Securities on the prop desk there, Xanthus Capital Management on the prop desk there. And then I went to BMO Capital Markets, which is a pretty big Canadian investment bank. I spent about three and a half years there. And most of my time was on the exotic derivatives and listed options desk. So, you know, when you're on a desk like that um, and you're looking at about one and, you know, $1.5 billion in exotics flow go through, you learn stuff really quick. You, you start understanding what it's like to really manage a book with all these sort of esoteric vault components that are moving at all different levels uh, and thinking about uh, thinking about risk and managing risk from that sort and payoff profiles. Um, so at, uh, at BMO, you know, I started noticing the market microstructure is changing and myself and my current partners had that same view. And we thought that we could create a fund that's a Volart fund, but more so focused around tail risk hedging. Um, so a lot of stuff that are statistical outliers in the U.S. equity space. And you know, about uh, almost two years now, and uh, here we are. So it's been uh, it's been quite a journey. So tail risk is hedging your portfolio. A lot of people, it's it's the left tail they're hedging when markets crash. So when markets crash, you're going to have this thing that's going to perform extremely well, that's going to generate cash for you in your portfolio when when no one else is. And a lot of the traditional tail hedge portfolios are. Uh, you know, buying extremely deep out of the money, long duration options, or buying uh, VIX futures. So I want to hear about how you know you and Ambrose you, you sort of changed that a little bit and uh, you had to have it. You have a new approach, but also like first, uh, tell me about you said the microstructure. The microstructure was changing. How is the microstructure changing, and you know, what did that tell you? The first thing is the very obvious tail uh, wagging the dog effect with uh, the dealer gamma hedging. So the growth of derivative exposure over the last four or five years has led to this more reflexive market. And what we've noticed is this dynamic is occurring more to the upside than it has occurred to the downside. Sorry, Chris, what's, re what's reflexive? Yeah, so in layman's terms, just think about it like this. Um, it's an exponential movement in the market. So if the market starts to go up little by little due to the quote unquote dealer gamma hedging, you'll notice a more uh, exacerbated move one way or the other way. So in layman's terms, it's you're noticing more uh, emphasized moves in shorter dated timeframes. And these these things you're seeing right in front of you, not only um, from the broad index, but also in single stocks. You know, we've seen quite a move in, in some single stock names over the last three to four years that have blown people's minds. 
um, specifically the whole GameStop and AMC thing in January of 2021. That was a great uh, case example as to how powerful something like this could be. Um, even, even if you think about, I think it was January 23rd or January 24th of this year, we saw the market deleverage two and a half percent to the downside and then bounced four and a half percent to the upside. These, these really rapid swings that are emphasized by positioning, that are emphasized by the quote unquote dealer gamma hedging, by, that are emphasized by structural flows that take place in the market. Um, you know, a lot of the, the passive investing has grown at a rapid rate. To, in, in our view, it seems like everybody is somewhat attached to the same type of trades. So what you end up seeing is that markets will reflexively grind higher and higher and higher and rapidly move to the upside. And then when everybody goes risk off, everybody's going risk off at the exact same time. And it creates the, the potential for these large deleveraging effects across the entire market. And then you could see situations like uh, February of 2018, like of Almageddon, where everybody's headed to the exit doors, or March of 2020, um, where you have this really big blow up and tail risk funds do extremely well. So that's really our view is that if you can position yourself in these areas with these pockets of dislocation that are driven by these structural flows, you can have a really good payoff uh, when the event does occur. And how is, how is that different? Like, let's say 10 years ago, what would happen? A, a stock went up a ton. You're saying a lot of people would then sell it. So it would sort of mean revert. What happened so that it's the opposite where now a stock goes up a ton and actually it's even more likely that it goes up even more. And if it goes down a lot, it's not going to go back. It's going to go down even more. So you have these explosive moves in either direction. What, you, what, what, is sort of, what sort of causes that? You alluded to passive, but is there anything else? Passive oh. investing. Yeah, you know, the passive investing thing has been been huge. Uh, systematic investing has grown tremendously over the last seven years. Think about how many of those robo-advisors are out there. Um, think about the growth of the ETF exposures that are out there. You have ETFs that have ETFs in them that are linked to the same type of names. Um, just think about the exposure that you have from, from large institutions. Uh, the TINA effect played a really big factor in this whole thing as well. Um, where rates are pinned to the ground and people are saying, well, if I'm going to take risk on European equities, why am I not going to take risk in, in U.S. equities? Uh, and that's led to this this massive bull market from, a, again, structural flow dynamic. But if you're thinking more from a microstructural standpoint, there's a couple of things that have transpired. Like if you think about the implementation of Dodd-Frank, which is the regulatory action post-2008, that has helped leap. Uh, help led to this this reflexive environment where the, the hedging profile is taking place much more frequently. And I use this example all the time. But in 2008, if you know you had a position on your book and the position was going against you, if you were a trader at one of these large institutions, you could keep taking all more risks. You could say, yeah, great, fine, I'll take all more risk. And the compliance officer would come over and you would say, yeah, screw you, man. Like, uh, I'm the trader. But in today's market, in today's regime, post Dodd-Frank, that's not the case. The compliance officer comes over and it's like, hey, you better put your book into line. Um, and if you are a derivatives trader, you have to run a delta neutral type of book. So if the position's going against you, let's say you're short a call, you have to hedge by the end of the day. You have to be carrying a certain amount of exposure um, and can't go over those exposure levels. So when you think about a reflexive market, that helps emphasize the beginning of these cascade moves. It's because 
I can't just say, forget the compliance officer. It's like, once that starts to go, I got a hedge and I'm pushing it more and more and more in either direction. So the, the, uh-huh. those are some of the things as well. And then also the concentration risk with the fact that there's only X amount of market makers that are making markets on a lot of US equity derivatives. You know, I, I'm not gonna go ahead and name them, but you know, if you're a participant in the space, you kind of have a good idea as to the market makers that control a lot of the liquidity in in the market. And the thing is, is that when things go risk off, they're gonna pull their liquidity as well. Um, so there, these are the components, moving components from a microstructural standpoint that impacts this market right now. What can you tell us about this year that you've seen that has really uh, been an exhibit of that phenomenon where you have tons of reflexivity? I think the best case was the, uh, last year in 2021 when you saw all these single stocks going absolutely bonkers and then back to the downside as well. Um, I think there is a, a change uh, that has transpired over the last few years as well. You have to think about all the millennials that are out there that are inheriting, you know, it's the it, people call it the biggest wealth transfer in history, right? Where the boomers are, are giving the majority of the buying power over, over to the millennials. And when you think as a millennial, and I'm a millennial, um, I may have a different mindset, but a lot of millennials are risk focused, where, you know, they're more inclined to take risk and, and be speculative. That's why we've come up with these acronyms such as like HODL or, you know, like the, the, the this, this mentality of YOLO. Um, and when you think about the way how asset prices are driven, I know it's funny to some people, but when you think about the way how asset prices are driven and how markets function, it's all a byproduct of human behavioral patterns. So if the new investing base is thinking more in a speculative manner, you should, you should expect to see that reflected in the way how asset prices move. And, and we have been seeing that as well with things, the, the way how asset prices change in, in the crypto, the old coins, the, the US equity market, um, speculation as a whole. And I think specifically over these last three months, we, we kind of shifted a little bit. You've seen um, more fear around the inflationary narrative and the rate hike narrative. And some people were, were swapping some of their exposures, hedge funds were going short. And in, in our view, at least, what we were saying, you know, we're, I know we did another podcast, we're on record of this, saying you know, we thought the market would, would rebound to highs, we're not there yet. But our real view is, is not from a fundamental standpoint or anything like that, but all because of the structural views that, that we discussed prior, where a lot of the price actions baked in, and, and we were really, and still are expressive that the rate hike narrative and the inflationary narrative is not going to be what drops the market. It's too priced in to drop the market. It's going to take some sort of an exogenous event to catch the market off sides. Now that could be some sort of a problem with with uh, you know a policy mistake down the line with the Fed. It could be the implications of balance sheet reduction. Um, but that's really our view: is that the structural flows help propel and prop the market up and the risk off that you've seen from people when it becomes baked in like this, there's a higher likelihood that this, the structural flows will come in, take over, and you'll see markets rally to highs. Just specifically in the world of volatility, the world, let's take the VIX, what have you been seeing this year? Uh, people have been noticing, as it typically does, that you know during extreme sell-offs, the VIX has been spiking, but it's been pretty quick to go back from that level at like spot 40 at spot VIX, down to, I think, uh, 
afternoon of March 24th, uh, VIX is now at 22. So how do you sort of go about trading that where volatility spikes higher, but it does not stay higher as well? This plays exactly into our thesis. Uh, this is exactly why we started the fund. This is exactly why we, we designed it this way is because we understood that when you have these structural flows, specifically from a derivative standpoint, you will have that effect where volatility can spike through the roof and then get suppressed really fast and spike through the roof and get suppressed. And same thing as markets, market go down and come come back up real fast. And, and to, to kind of bait off of that a little bit, we actually don't think that this move was a big VIX move. Um, contrary to what the, the, the media was, was kind of portraying, you never really felt that massive fear out there in equities. Um, just strictly off of the VIX futures term structure, you saw days where you would think that there should be fear, but the market was in slight backwardation. Um, fixed strike S&P vols, sometimes the market would be down a percent in a quarter, or and, and fixed strike S&P vols were down as well. Um, you know, you had that correlation break ac across the board there. Um, so I, th I think the, the, the narrative that there was a lot of fear or something like that was never out there. And I think from the, the fault land, what we're seeing in VIX, that compression and then you know that little spikeability and compression is more in line with the thesis that we had that the structural flows could affect that. So it's it's important for people to understand that the relationship that you have with the market and VIX is not a perfect relationship. You can have a scenario where the market goes down and VIX falls don't go up, or you could have a situation where market goes down a little bit and VIX falls go up a lot. You know, you saw correlation breaks like that, even on September of 2020, when the whole SoftBank thing came out, where the market was going up and you had VIX falls that were starting to blow out because of the force hedging from, from SoftBank. Um, so that that the, those are dynamics that it's important for people to, to understand that markets don't work in that fashion, in the exact fashion where one will go up, one will go down, vice versa. You have a pretty... Uh hard to explain view on vol the volatility of volatility. Uh, how did you form that view? And then, you know, you've been very uh, successful trading that this year. Tell us a little bit about the trade that was actually you know written up in, in Reuters. We can put a link in the description below. But so how, how did you, you know, I guess we have to start back in November when you sent that letter to clients. So let's take, take us there. Long story short, you have these VIX ETPs that are these exchange traded products that are linked to the VIX futures term structure. And what you have seen in past market events is these things will trade aggressively off of NAV when you have moments of market stress. So if the market is down big, these things start trading way off of NAV and the authorized participants who are designated to kind of bring this back into NAV by creating shares or redeeming shares, they don't or they can't step in front of it. So NAV creation, the NAV breaks become bigger and bigger and bigger. And when you have levered volatility products such as TBIX, you know, people remember TBIX, it was three, three times levered ball product. Uh, they had to kill it. They had to kill it in uh, August of 2020 because of, if you look at what that name did during uh, COVID, I think it went over like over 2000% or something. It was something insane. Um, and that's because the APs couldn't keep it in line. And obviously a three times levered ball product in an environment like that is just gonna go through the roof. So, yeah. you know, so, so for, for us, 
we we're very familiar with with all these products, the calculations, the pricings, the way how the functionalities of them work. And what we started saying is you had a more because you killed TBIX, you had more concentration risk that was linked to v, VXX and, U, and UVXY. Um, and in our view, at least, we believe that if you had a moment of true market stress, the tails on these would lift up in a way that the payoff profile would be really big. So our view was more from a mechanical standpoint that we should be increasing some of our exposure there. And we sent it out to to our investors. And I know Reuters had, had um, that, that article written up on us. Uh, but you know, it wasn't one of those things where we were really proud of the move because in reality, we're really trying to make 200% or 150% or, or, or more than that because we understand how the pricing can get on some of these things. Uh, but the thesis that you can have the nab breaks, I guess is affirmed because Barclays didn't really want to take on that risk. Barclays kind of moved away and and there's some there's some speculation that's out there on why they they cut the share creation process um but long story short it's a nab break in the vix etps um and it's something that we we feel pretty strong that you'll see going forward if you get into an environment where the market's under real stress yeah this is not one of those things where okay we're gonna have chris on and the audience can listen about this great trade that he did and it's over this is you're telling us about chapter one, but there's, you know, this is early innings and this is a phenomenon that you're going to be tracking for for a while. A few things that, Chris, I'll explain for the audience and correct me if I make any mistakes. ETPs, as you say, are exchange traded products. These VIX ETPs own a basket of VIX futures. And if you type up something like UVXY uh, in Google and you just go to the max, you'll see that, you know, the drawdown about that is about like 99.99% on an absolute return basis, right? Because uh, the the term structure is normally in contango and you're buying these, uh, wait, wait, yeah, you're, you're buying these, you have these cheap ones and you always have to sort of pay up to to go to the next contract. Um, so maybe, you know, you said you, five minutes ago, you talked about the uh, VIX term structure being in backwardation as a sign of complacency. And then NAV is net asset value. So that is, you know, if we wanted to liquidate the fund today, what is the true value of all of these VIX contracts? Uh, and then something can trade above or below a net asset value. So people in the crypto space might know that uh, the Grayskull Bitcoin Trust is trading about 20% below the amount of Bitcoin in the actual fund due to some liquidity things that are definitely not worth getting into now. Uh, and then there's the AP authorized participants who are the ones who are responsible for buying the, the VIXs and then taking them to Barclays, who's the originator of the ETP. So what happened with Barclays? I, I saw about maybe three weeks ago, I saw you as Chris Citadel. I'm like, oh man, he said something about this V this UVXY thing. Why, what did they stop doing and and why? And also the thing that we're talking about is UVXY or VXX or no, is it both? It's VXX. So, so UVXY okay. has a, a little slither of VXX inside of it, but that's a whole different thing. We won't even touch on that. So, so, so VXX, this, this is a Barclays product that's linked to the, it, it's a, it's a note. So it's not even an ETF, it, it's a note. And it's linked to the two front month fixed futures uh, contracts. Um, so what Barclays did was they cut the share creation process. And as I was explaining before, when you have these ETPs in order to keep them in line with NAB, the authorized participants need to be able to create shares and redeem shares. So if it's trading over NAV at a premium, they'll create shares and try to put it back into place, vice versa, you know, redeem shares of thought. So 
the the situation with Barclays, once they cut that share creation, it becomes a supply and demand imbalance problem where if a bunch of people just start flocking to VXX, it could start moving it big time off NAV. And, and, and TVIX, this is way back, I think almost a decade now, that traded, I think it was like 100% off NAV at a time. Um, you know, so these things could get really way off of NAV in a, in a really big way if you don't have the, the APs that are there to kind of move it in line. Um, so because Barclays cut that, and, and there's a lot of speculation that's out there as to why Barclays cut it, was it an operational issue? Um, was it something internally? I mean, we, we've been trying to speak with people and it's just all speculation. You know, there's, not, there's nothing to, to affirm. So maybe we're wrong on this as well. Uh, but in our view, we think that it had something to do with a risk thing because they cut it on OIL um, as well, which is another uh, ETP that they have, which is not linked to volatility, it's oil. So when you have two different asset classes and you kind of, which have been acting volatile, I think it was an internal thing where they say, let's focus on where these hot pockets of risk and let's decide to minimize that. So how can we do that? We cut it on oil, we cut it on volatility and that will be fine. Uh, that's my personal view. That's what I think. This is no way, shape or form, 100% or nor is this what Barclays inferred. This is just me going off of what I believe it was. Chris, the vanilla way to put this strategy is, is oh, we have this view on VXX. I'm just going to buy VXX. You structured it a little bit differently via call options. Tell us about that, why you did that, and also what it's like having a view, not just about the asset, not just about the volatility of the asset, but volatility of the volatility. And, and what's that like sort of riding that trade? Everything that we do uh, as, as a fund when, when thinking about um, long volatility is strictly in the tails. Uh, so we're always buyers. We're always buyers of very, 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 very cheap uh, contracts. Um, and the way how we look at the book is we say, can we be buyers of tails across the board in this bucket? And can we run flow type strategies on an intraday level to mitigate the bleed in this bucket? So if you remove this layer, what you would have is just some something that's completely uncorrelated to the S&P and is more so pure alpha that is being ran. But it doesn't look like that because the profits that you have here, you take and you fund here. Um, so that's really our view is we're always buyers of tails because wherever we think that the tails are cheap or, or there could be potential dislocations um, that are occurring, that's just our view as a firm is to is to be buyers of tails and, and long kurtosis across the board. So there was never a time where we're going to be buyers of uh, at the money at the money you know con calls on on VXX or something, and especially because you know I was having this this conversation with a, a junior trader uh, who was a friend of mine, and I was telling him when you have some of these things and you understand how levered products work you understand the way how the skew profile will change. And what you could see immediately is when volatility spikes up and everybody's in a panic, those calls that are 200% out the money are not far off from the price that are 100% out the money. And it sounds crazy to people who think about option pricing in theory like that, but this is how markets work. And, and I mean, you've seen it, and, and the best case example I could give to people who are not familiar with vol products and how volatility works is GME. You've seen the way how the calls were priced. You were saying, man, if I bought GME, you know, two, 
if I'm pricing the calls 200% out in, in two months, they're pretty much the same thing as the call 100% out in two months as well. So, you know, why don't I just buy this? So it becomes a flat distribution. Distribution turns platy curdy and, and flattens out. And if you have a ton of tails that you paid pretty much nothing for, um, and the distribution turns like that, your whole P&L picks up in a really big way. So that's kind of why we always like the idea of tails. So you're saying when shit hits the fan, the tails become flat. And in this case, for UVXY, you have a little, I imagine you have some call skew because when that's the, the risk off that's associated with a negative correlation to the market, whereas, you know, it would be a put option on an SP, SPY, SPX, or any other sort of risk asset, but calls on UVXY is where you, you want to go. And I mean, do you, are you someone who like, you know, there's no contract to, there's no delta too low for you where you just say, you know, a 100 call, how, how about a 200 call, you know, or are you someone who... Uh, you know, like you like to stick more in that, you know, how do you sort of navigate how far out of the money you want to go? That right there becomes a little more proprietary um, in, yeah. in how we kind of base where we want to be at. Um, but when we're thinking about anything that's levered or anything that has variance that's attached to it, if the, the entire distribution of the skew profile could pick up in a big way, we're looking at it and we're saying that's that's kind of where we should be buyers of, of tails. Uh, and when I speak to allocators and investors all the time, I use them this. I, I use this this uh, saying all the time that we'll never be buyers of all in things like Tesla. Uh, we'll, we're more likely to be buyers of all in things like Coca Cola. And people will be like, "Well, why? Why the hell would you be buying Coca Cola? The vols don't move." That's because when shit hits the fan, I can get way more Coca Cola tails than I can buy the Tesla tails. And when shit hits the fan and the vols are somewhat equal, the PL for the Coca-Cola tails are way, way, way more than the Tesla tails. So that that's really our view is, is be buyers of of very cheap skew um, and cheap variants wherever you could get it, because when the moment happens, you'll be rewarded in a really big way. And that doesn't mean that an individual trader, hedge fund investor would be wrong to invest in a, a buy up put or a call for Tesla to express the view on an asset, get get cheap leverage. It's just as you as a volatility volatility arbitrage trader, you specifically are looking for extremely convex moves during extreme cascading, uh, you know, vicious sell-offs. And a put of Coca-Cola where the implied volatility is 14, uh, that will be that will pay off way more than a put on Tesla that already has an implied volatility of something like fifty. Correct, right? correct, absolutely, and, and it bakes into our mandate too. Uh, for as a hedge fund, what what our job is 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 to really provide downside protection for an overall uh, for a client's overall portfolio. So what you'll see is people who want to bet on the market going down, they'll come to us. People that are thinking about overall portfolio construction and how tail risk exposure could help. The, the entire portfolio, they'll come to us. So you'll have like a client who will have, let's say 80% in equities and 15% in some sort of alternative investments across the board. And then they'll take 5% put it into a tail risk fund so that if some something hits the fan, a fund like ours that is gonna have that big payoff, you're gonna be able to now take that, and put it to work to buy assets really, really cheap. I'm glad you brought up the mandate because I think the way that you do tail risk is different from traditional tail risk strategies. You know, I'm not going to do service to the legend of tail risk, but you know, just go with me. It's the strategy is pretty much you buy a lot of long dated options that trade at high volatility, and you 
don't really worry about generating income. You're, you're paying, you're bleeding. You know, you maybe 10 minutes ago, you said bleed. That's what it means because guess what? Like insurance doesn't come for free. You got to pay for it. So if you're just paying for it every day, you're bleeding. And you know, there, uh, or you buy VIX futures and just tons of tons of, of bleed talked and you know, a 5% allocation to tail risk there, maybe a little bit too much. Cause that's, you know, you're coming kind of bleeding 5% a year. Talk to me about why, you know, you've generated strategies to generate income. So you don't bleed as much. So you're not just constantly like having to call investors and say, Hey, guess what? We're, we're a tail risk fund. Like we, we lost 5%. You know what I mean? When we started off on this journey, that's the first thing that we looked to address. We said to ourselves, well, what's the real, there's two big problems with tail risk. One is when you bleed on way too much, um, or the secondary format is when the move hits, you don't make enough. Um, and what you would often see in the tail risk space is these quote unquote solutions based tail risk funds where it doesn't matter whatever vol is priced at, no, no matter anything, this time of day, at this specific moment, I'm buying tails and I'm rolling them. It's a systematic solutions based product. And you often see a lot of back test results that are on this. A lot of uh, other quants will use this sort of references and it's just wrong because, and I use this example to so many times, but think about if you gave a manager who is long equities money and every Monday he went out, every Monday at 10 a.m. he went and bought Apple. Well, if you look at the sheet and you see what he bought every single money he's just buying apple at the same time no type of alpha no type of uh any type of skill at all you would say this is why am i doing this i could code an algo in in an hour and get the same thing done um and that's the same way how tail risk has been applied because it's such a niche space so what we said is can we take the prop trading background that we have the ethos of the firm to be quote unquote trader focused to say, let's run strategies that are non-correlated to the S&P or S&P vault to make money to fund the tails. And it may not be a situation where at all times you're trading 100% well and you're, you're making a ton of money, right? You may have moments where, damn, you know, we're not trading too well. Or you may have moments where we're trading really good and that, that bleed is way, way, way less than people anticipate. But this active approach, this dynamical approach of applying tail risk hedging to help an overall portfolio, that's really our view. And that's 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 really the, the, the firm principle is use the math to an extent and then use the trading ability, keep the, the trading ethos of the firm to make sure that we're keeping that balance to, to have that type of profile for clients. I think investors have been sort of Pavlovially been trained to buy the dip because if they've done so over the past 10, well, really 14 years now, uh, well, 13 years, they've been very much rewarded for just you know grinning and bearing it and and buying a 10% dip, buying a 15% dip. How much better? How much of the, you know? I, I know you know your remit. You're when you're trading all the time, you're not really thinking about the Federal Reserve. You're you're focusing on on the math, on the flows. However. You know, quantitative easing. When I first learned about it, I'm like, okay, they're buying it. They're injecting a lot of liquidity. Liquidity is cash, so asset prices go up. I think the more I've learned about quantitative easing is that it actually the most powerful force is volatility suppression uh, within the fixed income world, treasury world. I know it's, you mostly deal in, in equities, but how much you know you you have to think about that a little bit. That okay, since March of 2020, the Federal Reserve has been suppressing volatility uh, until December. 
uh, and then started tapering its balance sheet. Pretty soon, it's going to start tightening its balance sheet, and you know, about three trillion dollars of assets have to go roll off for uh, for us to return to a normalized balance sheet. With the Federal Reserve you know, is is that a risk or, that you're thinking of, or you know, a risk to an equity investor, but an opportunity for a volatility guy like yourself? As a firm, a lot of what we do, you're 100% right, is focused on flows and positionings. Sometimes we get it right, where you have a situation like like the GameStop and we make money on on that. Sometimes we get it wrong. Like our, our recent view was, uh, you know, you could have a, a bigger dislocation if the market got under this level. But the, old, the, the whole principle is around flow and, uh, and positioning. So when clients come to us and they're, they're like, hey, so what do you think the next event is going to be? Well, the, the the raw truth, and if anybody tells you different, you know, they're lying to you, is that you have no clue what a black swan event is going to be, because it wouldn't be a black swan event if anybody could see it coming. And that's what kurtosis is. It's an unquantifiable area of, of markets and life. So we have no clue what this next event will be. But the one thing that uh, over the last year we've been observing more and more is the impact of the balance sheet reduction and how that could lead to a policy mistake. And I'll give an example as to why we think that that's so important. It's because over the last decade, um, what you've noticed with a lot of investors is when markets go risk off, if you're a big hedge fund, you could come in and you could buy the dip. And the prime brokers are able to extend the credit to you on the arm because the Fed has lent it out to that. So if you're like, let's say you're trading at 100, let's say 200% margin or something like that, if you're a long short equity fund, and now you're having positions go against you. Well, effectively, you could just martingale that. And what I mean by martingale, just doubling down, doubling down, doubling down, because the PB is like, man, we don't want this hedge fund you know, to go under because if they go under, it's systemic risk. And by the way, they're a great client to us and they put X amount on our, our, our top line rev every single quarter. So we don't want these guys to go under. So yeah, lend them the money, lend them the money. And it's been like a gambler in Vegas who's drunk, who's just winning. It's deadly, right? So, so that's the worst thing that can happen to you if you're drunk in Vegas is, is and you're, you're winning. It's because you're like, yeah, bet, it, bet some more, bet some more. Next thing you know, like you're winning, 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 and then then you start going down, and you're betting more, betting more, betting more, betting more, and it's just, right? It's it's not a good thing. Time catches up to you. The, the, the statistics will catch up to you eventually. The, the negative edge, and the way how we view it is that when the Fed cuts the, this is why we say the rate of the balance sheet reduction, because if the Fed comes in immediately and says, like, boom, we're chopping a big part of the, the balance sheet immediately, well, that's going to impact interdealer lending no matter what repo facilities that they say they have set up or any of that, that's gonna, so the bottom line is, it's gonna impact interdealer lending. And when that impacts interdealer lending, that's going to impact the way how these large banks are gonna be able to extend credit to their best clients. And what that means is that if shit hits the fan, the same way those guys were able to have excess cash, excess cash, they won't be able to, to get it on the arm. And the PB will, will have to say, sorry, can't extend that to you because it's actually internal risk for us now in a big way that we can't be extending it out. So that's a hazard that we see um, coming down the line. I like how a client asked you a question. You said, look, I don't know. And if anyone tells you they do know the answer, they're lying. And I, I like that intellectual honesty, humility, because 
no one has a crystal ball at the end of the day. Like I'm not going to ask you where do you think the S and P is going to be at the the end of the year. However, you know, in a probability adjusted way, do you think like the next nine months are going to be more volatile or less volatile than the preceding nine months? And if you do you have a view on the delta, like where the risk assets themselves rather than than the volatility uh, are are as well? And you know, if so, how is that you know impacting your 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 positioning? So. On the, on the other podcast, when I said that I think the market would be at highs uh, by June, um, a lot of people were like, you're a volatility guy. You know, why would you like, how can you have that view? Again, it's really hard to refute some of the structural flows that we see. Um, and it's just, it's like every day we sit in front of screens and we see this type of flow coming in. We talk to brokers, we're, we're you know, we're, we're getting certain feedback from, from certain brokers about what type of flow it is. We're seeing the type of flow these things weigh in your head and you're like, man, this is like, this is, here we go, right? The Tina effect, the structural flow effect, the the dealer gamma hedging, uh, the corporate buyback action, all those type of factors, the, the growth of passive, the robo-advisor flows, all those things. It's just like this big train coming at you. So it's hard for me to say, yeah, I think people are just going to sell off equities because rates are going higher. I don't think we're there yet. I like moving up 25 bips or, or or you know even even 100 bips i don't think we're going to be at that area um yet just yet i think these structural flows are still playing a factor we, we will get there the show will end eventually um but our view is more so that these structural flows will continue to dominate the market and from time to time you will see these big deleveraging effects so what you'll see is the market go up, go up, go up, and then boom, you'll see this sporadic big volatility moment. The market will have a big drawdown and then structural flows will try to make its way back. Very similar to, to uh, March, the, the environment that we saw in March of 2020. The exogenous event is something that will come. It will eventually come and it will catch positioning offside. Um, we have no idea what the catalyst will be, but that type of price action is what we really believe that this this environment is in. And there's no, you know, I, I know a friend of mine, Jem, and I know you uh, you spoke with Jem before too. You know, he talks about the whole um, the whole bottom of March 2020 being right around OPEX, and he's right. He's right to talk about that because a lot of people just just completely ignore that. There's a reason why the market bottom. It's not a coincidence. The market bottom right there on OPEX. Structural flows will help propel the market back into into line. Chris, I first started looking into structured products because of you and, and what you've written about them. They really are so Gordian and, and intricate and like almost kind of in some ways more complicated than the financial products of that you know that blew up the financial world in 2008. But obviously, they're way smaller than than mortgage-backed securities and, and uh, CDOs. Are, what are you seeing in terms of the growth of equity structured products? I know they're really big in Asia. Like, are they growing that quickly? Like, do you think that they could you know at one time be, you know become a a huge force in the market because right now they're not that big, right? This is my background. You know, my background is in exotics trading. Um, so I'm very familiar with the process. I'm very familiar with how these things are priced and, and, and traded over uh, OTC. Um, now, the interesting thing about US exotics is that it has now, the size has overtaken Asia. It's bigger in the US. The, the US structural price market is the biggest one in the world now. Um, and that happened at a at a really rapid rate over the last two years, and that's a that, yeah. yeah that's a byproduct of the fact of how uh, 
yield focus the investor bases. So what you will see is that because rates are so low, people are saying, and here's here's how the majority of these things are struck. You'll have a financial advisor who will go to his uh, clients, his private wealth clients and say, hey, would you like to make 12% this year as long as Tesla, Apple, or Amazon don't drop under, uh, don't drop 25%. Everybody in the room is like, what? These names are not dropping 25%, no way. Yeah, I'll make 12.5% on an annual base. Absolutely, sign me up. So financial advisor will now go, he'll get about 100, 200 million dollars worth of, of interest. He'll go to his trading desk, his trading desk, which let's say is BlackRock, will now go to other financial institutions and traders and try to trade with, with people like myself because they'll now, guys like myself will price the note, issue the note, and then hedge the hedge our risks for whatever institution bank we're, we're working for. Um, and yeah, it becomes a big problem uh, because of the, again, hedging profile that takes place internally with the bank. Whenever, whenever you have any of these products that just balloon up, they become a, a systemic hazard, no matter what. Nothing in financial markets were designed for everybody to flock there. That's what causes these things. It's not, it's not the product, it's not this or that. It's because everybody gravitates towards it. And then what ends up happening is everybody tries to get out at the same time. So, you know, that's, that's the effect. And yeah, we, we do think that it could be a potential problem because of the way how some of the banks have been hedging the risk. That's a whole nother conversation. Um, but it, it, it's not at that point yet because it's still relatively small. Um, but the way how it could impact U.S. equities because of the hedging profiles and some of these things, it, it's really big. Yeah, well, Chris, I'll have to get you back on forward guidance so you can explain in depth the, the problems that the banks are, are using to, to hedge the, their structured products. Um, but Chris, my final question for you is, what do you think is the most common thing you hear that is a misunderstanding about volatility that is causing investors to either uh, lose money or lose sleep? Let's put it that way. Oh, man, I hear so I hear so much uh, of the flawed stats, flawed numbers, flawed sayings. Um, and I am no know-it-all or anything like that, but I'm just saying from a volatility standpoint, I think the biggest misunderstanding is from a portfolio construction standpoint. You would just hear investors talk about, I don't need a hedge. Why do I need to pay for a hedge? Why um, can't I just focus on, on basic trend following? And you know what I really try to, to emphasize to, to allocators and some of these CIOs is that there's a time and there's a place for everything. Um, and the, the job of tail risk as a whole is to provide something that is going to give you a net positive geometric return over the long run. So it's really simple. I wanna make more money in three years than I made today. Well, how do you do that? Well, when you structure a portfolio that is comprised well with all these different additive layers that all focus on doing a job, that's how you have that outperformance. And oftentimes, like the whole saying that investment advisors and allocators are judging a goalie on how well they score goals is really true. You can't judge a tail risk fund or volatility in the same manner you would judge absolute return and, and, and vice versa. And the reason for that is because everything has a place in a portfolio. So a perfect portfolio, you know, if, if there ever is such, I know shout out to the Mutiny Fund, because you know, Jason has the, the cockroach portfolio. 
um, which is a really solid portfolio. And, and he has the same view too, is that you take a mix of all these little things and you put them together and you basket them together and each plays a part in the portfolio. So when I hear people say things like, yeah, I'm just gonna sell, I'm gonna buy here and I'm gonna sell here at the right time and I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna buy here. It's just unrealistic. Markets don't work that way at all. And and if you think that you could trade like that, you know, you're bound to run into a, a, a big issue eventually. And I think this is why you've seen so many sophisticated investors gravitate over towards volatility hedge funds over the last two years is because they understand that a lot of money could be made and saved by proper volatility investing. And I think that's really the biggest, um, the biggest head scratcher to me is that, well, people will you know, pay $15 million for a home and they'll buy insurance. They'll pay $250,000 for a car, they'll buy insurance. And they have like a 50 or $100 million family office portfolio and be like, yeah, no, don't worry about it. Like, we don't need, we don't need insurance. We don't need, uh, we don't need that because the defensive names are going to act as defensive names and the bonds are going to kick in and the gold. And it's just wrong. Defensive names? Hey, what are, you, are you kidding me? Well, that's, that's, that's what we, we, we kind of talk about on a day-to-day basis because people think that markets function in a linear fashion where this goes up one way, the beta on this must mean that this is going down one way where it's like, they don't work that way. Yeah, or even worse, they take a fundamental view and they say, look, uh, uh, Procter & Gamble, they're still gonna be selling shampoo no matter if we're in a great depression. And they're right, but the people will be selling the stocks because they need to sell the stocks because they need the money. And you often hear things where people are like, oh, well, if the S&P goes down here, you know, we're gonna have to worry about uh, planting our own food and doing things like that. Like, it sounds good. Conceptually, it sounds, it makes you feel comforted that yeah the market is never going down there and then when you're two percent away from the market being down there and your margin called and you lost all your wealth it's just like oh my god i can't believe this happened and then the market turns around three four months later or something like that and you could have survived that if you were constructed in, in, a, in a much more efficient way uh that that's been the most surprising thing to me in this whole journey uh, of being a, a a fund manager over the last two years is or close to two years is the lack of understanding from a basic portfolio construction from people who manage millions and billions of dollars um so yeah it's uh it's the same movie it's just different actors this is why we we go through these things time and time and time again Chris, thanks so much for joining us on Forward Guidance. Uh, you got you share a lot of your knowledge on volatility on Twitter. I believe your handle is at K-S-I-D-I-I-I. If you're watching this, uh, definitely subscribe to the BlockWorks YouTube channel. Click the bell so you can uh, you know, get alerted when more videos, more interviews like this come up. Chris, before you go, just quickly tell us people about, uh, you know, Tail Risk is a, is a niche product, but people, if, if they, they want to learn more about the Ambrose Group, where, where can they go? You could uh, go on our website, ambrosegroup.com. You guys could Google us. Uh, we have a lot of stuff that's out there from uh, different interviews. And, and uh, yeah, we, we have a, a paper coming out uh, later on this quarter. I think some people will enjoy it. Um, we also have a video just on YouTube. So, yeah, we're, we're kind of out there. Feel free to hit me up on Twitter, hit me up on LinkedIn, uh, reach us on the page, bother by other partners. <laughs> Chris, thanks so much. Thank you, man.